This podcast is brought to you with limited interruption by Rudy Luther Toyota. Whether looking for an exciting brand new Toyota, a certified pre-owned vehicle, or getting quality routine maintenance and service for your vehicle, Rudy Luther Toyota is the place to go. Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. Subscribe to the podcast Beyond Politics. They host some of the biggest names and smartest minds. Beyond Politics is from a former Democratic congressman who helped ignite Barack Obama's campaign and a former campaign manager and political columnist. They go beyond the usual chatter on politics, news, science, and books. It's politics and everything beyond. On Beyond Politics, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show for your Tuesday. Good to be with you. Matt Patrick here. Uh, Patrick Cooligan is going to join Brett here in just a little bit, uh, talk about some of the news coming in from Minnesota Reformer. How are you today, Patrick? Doing pretty well. How are you doing today? I, I'm I'm a little concerned uh, because it sounds like illegally Donald Trump has a gun. Oh, I did hear about this. <laughs> uh, apparently, uh, so yeah, this is this is one of those things where uh, I, I saw this, and I mean, he, he, of course, he's too stupid for for his own good. I mean, let's just be honest with you. It just it's he is he is dumb as as a brick. But the um, apparently, he doesn't seem to understand that if you're under felony indictment, you can't buy a gun in this country. And this is, by the way, on a quick side note, this is one of the things that's just delicious about the whole thing with Hunter Biden. Republicans really want to ignore the gun charge against Hunter Biden because to go after him, which, by the way, is the one charge that actually has some teeth to it, you would have to look like you're against the guns and they don't want to do that. So it's, it's kind of one of those things. And now you have this. Video appearing to show former President Trump trying to buy a firearm during a South Carolina campaign stop raised questions about the illegality of the purchase on Monday afternoon. Trump, who is running in the Republican presidential primary, has been indicted in four separate criminal cases, two federal cases related to alleged attempts to overthrow the 2020 election results, and a classified documents found at his Mar-a-Lago residence, and a New York case related to an alleged hush money payment made during his 2016 campaign in a Georgia case surrounding the 2020 election. Trump maintains his innocence in each case. You're all lying. Everybody's lying but me. And they're coming after you. That's it. Yep. He's accused prosecutors of targeting him for political purposes. <coughs> no, you're just a horrible human being. That's that's it. The former president, a supporter of gun rights, stopped by a gun shot in Somerville, a shop in Somerville, South Carolina, a critically er, critical early voting state in the primary on Monday, just hours after uh, you know, delivering remarks at a campaign rally. Video posted on Twitter um, showed Trump appearing to purchase a firearm. A Trump spokesperson, then Stephen Chung, wrote in a now-deleted post that Trump indeed did purchase the firearm. But then later, after he deleted the post, insisted, no, he didn't purchase the gun. He wrote in a statement, President Trump did not purchase or take possession of the firearm. He simply indicated he wanted one, which is not what they said initially. Nor is it because it is illegal for him to buy a firearm. <laughs> and apparently, Mr. Johnny Law didn't know that. But hey, you know, I, let's put it this way. I guarantee you no one's, no one's going to prosecute that case because guns are the greatest thing ever, apparently, in, in some parts of the country. And yep, that's just that's what it is. But needless to say, he doesn't even know the laws. And 
<laughs> Although I will say, if there was a federal charge against him, it's pretty hard for you to, to argue, here I am buying my gun. Look at me, my gun. Maybe he doesn't realize it's not chocolate. And that's it, it, it could be a chocolate gun. He thinks he can eat it. Maybe he thinks that's the case. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205 is the phone number. I am going to read a name for you. And I just it's the first two words of the story. And I'm just going to stop and say this. Von Klingenberg. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. Von Klingenberg. My guess is you just figured out where I'm about to go with this story. <laughs> just on the name Von Klingenberg. Von Klingenberg, a candidate for a school board election in Roseville, Minnesota, made an appearance on VT Radio Podcast in July to candidly discuss his extensive anti-Semitic beliefs and Holocaust denial, a recording shows. Wow. During his interview with the VT Radio's Uncensored Alternative Foreign Policy Talk podcast, you guys need to worry about, work on the name, the UAFPT, the UF uh, podcast, Klingenberg made several claims about the Holocaust and Judaism that are highly questionable at best and unethical and bizarre at worst. Much of Klingenberg's claims are based on a baseless theory that big Zionist Jews, and that's in quote, orchestrated the Holocaust to persecute the little Jews and that Nazis were actually trying to save Jewish people locked up in concentration camps. Um, let me just uh, quick, a quick moment here. I was stationed in Germany and I had the um, – I, I, I took it upon myself to be a witness. And I went to uh, two of the concentration camps and – I will just say what the Nazis did was horrible. And the U.S. and pretty much all the armed forces, even the Russians, when they found a concentration camp, many of them would round up all the neighbors from around because they knew something was going on over there. They knew it. They knew the Jews had disappeared. They knew all the Jewish furniture and wealth and belongings were now in possessions of other people that all their stores had been taken, that all these things. They knew that the entire Jewish population just didn't up and leave. They knew it. What they didn't want to acknowledge is what they also knew, which was that there was an extermination of the Jews going on. They knew it. They just didn't want to accept it. And, they, and what they did was what the armed forces, the allied forces did was specifically go get the German people and make sure no one in Germany would ever deny what exactly they did. And you you hear about the, the Germans that were forced to walk past and, you know, it's, it's hey, hey, I'm not, the scarring was on what happened to the Jews, but they themselves will talk about how for the rest of their lives, they, they, they basically lived with the reality of what they had become. Still, once again, not as bad as what the, the Nazis did to the Jews, but still, you know, it was the right thing to do to prevent people from basically making up bull to try to argue 
that we shouldn't have really been upset about what happened to the Jews. And yeah, horrible. Uh, so going back to Von Klingenberg, a candidate for school board in Roseville. Come on, Roseville. This is a quote. Zionist Jews wanted the Holocaust, not the Nazis, Klingenberg claimed. The thing is, too, that and the thing is, too, and what annoys me is that we're not we're excuse me. Let me do that again. The thing is, too, and what annoys me is that we're doing the Jewish community a favor. We're giving doing them a favor by giving them the facts about the Holocaust, which they may not want to face. I think there's profound cognitive dissidence in the Jewish community, but us Holocaust truthers are doing the Jews a favor. Wow. Wow. This is uh, from Heartland Signal, by the way, if you're wondering where this story came from. Earlier in the audio, Klingenberg also said the Jewish religion is an ideology based on victimization, which is a lethal combination with the master race ideology. The Holocaust was an organized genocide against the Jewish individuals conducted by the Nazi German Nazis in Germany during World War II. Adolf Hitler publicly labeled the Jewish community as the main scapegoat for Germans' economic struggles in the early 20th century. This led to the widespread persecution of the Jewish people, among others like Catholics, homosexuals, and the mentally disabled. Over Hitler's 12-year reign in Germany, millions of Jews were stripped of their rights, forced into concentration camps, and killed by uh, by overwork or by just outright they murdered them. Another fact that Klingenberg contested was the figure of 6 million Jewish deaths because of the Holocaust. He claims that it's closer to 300,000 deaths that were mostly due to typhus and famine in Germany at the time. He also said that there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that Jews were gassed in the concentration camps. Outside of as a person who has been to the concentration camps, the actual gas chambers, which are still there. That evidence. Wow. The evidence of the Nazi guards who basically have told the, the truth about this. It's just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, Klingenberg has a website where he showcases books he has written, including The Big Lie, The Holocaust. The website also states that Klingenberg's goal is to assist individuals to think for themselves free of external intellectual coercion or self-imposed political correctness. According to Klingenberg's LinkedIn profile, he received a master's degree in philosophy from Marquette University and taught the logic course but he has worked as an insurance representative since 2019. According to the Minnesota Secretary of State's office, Klingenberg filed his candidacy for the 2023 municipal board and school district elections. On August 14th of this year, he is slated to appear on the ballot for the Roseville school board election that will be held on November 7th. Klingenberg did not respond to comment for his reason for running for school board and whether it has anything to do with his Holocaust beliefs. Should he be elected, Klingenberg will be one of six members of the school board to oversee Education policy for a town of 36,000 people. Wow. There have, we have talked about off-year elections and we have talked about how there is a tendency for us to just skip past it and not care. And the, the day and age of us ignoring 
even off-year municipal elections, special elections, they're over. Because if you basically do not vote Democrat or not educate yourself on these some of these races where there's not a party affiliation, you will basically elect people who are working against the best interests of the community, the school, etc. We can talk about Hastings. And in Hastings, where there were school board candidates who seemed to be part of an anti-transgender group and vilified a young child, a young child that they wanted to make decisions for, became their enemy number one. They purposely and intentionally targeted that young child. And shame on you guys in Hastings. A lot of those guys got elected to the school board. Shame on all of you. And you're in your school board of hatred. Dear Lord, what a what a debacle that was. I remember I've talked about numerous times United Dyna 273. That was the group that was trying to Basically, because there was a land developer who wanted to develop houses and his lot was in the Hopkins School District because part of a diner is in the Hopkins School District. They wanted to unite a diner. But what they really wanted to do was basically just take their land and put it into the Adina School District so they could charge more money for the houses. They specifically left off townhomes at Bren Londonderry 169 and the apartment complexes at Lincoln Fifth and 169 and the entire northern part of Adina. So it wasn't so much unite a diner. It was so much unite certain parts of Adina. And they actually, there was at one point, uh, and I've talked about this, there was actual candidates on the school board in the school board races in Hopkins who seemed to have been placed there solely as plant candidates to try to push this through, to try to push this through. It was, as a matter of fact, I think there was a relation to one of the developers was one of the candidates. And I remember calling her up and I said, well, what's your thought about this elementary school's air conditioning policy? Should we, should we get a new air conditioner for it? And you, she got quiet. And she said, I only really care about property owner rights. Well, but fine, but you still need to care about what's going on in the schools. I only really care about property owner rights. So do you care at all about what goes in schools? I only care about property owner rights. I said, okay, I think I get the point. Needless to say, all three of them were voted out. They did not win the, that that uh, school board election that year. None of them succeeded. There's a story down in in, in Texas, and I always I thought this was you know appropriate. Uh, a school board down there uh, was taken over by far right religious groups, and one of the first things they did is get rid of the the, the football program. And it was funny because all these people who either didn't vote or did vote and thought that this was going to be fine, they made the decision. We are going to get rid of this. Now, they ended up frantically scrambling and and getting it reinstated because there was people talking about recall elections and it's Texas and football. So I think they were talking about, you know, mob violence at that point when they did that. But it's a good lesson that you need to learn everything you can about these candidates and it's not it's not good enough to just go into an election and just say, okay, uh, I'll vote for this guy and this guy. If you need to know what they are, this is our right as American citizens to pick the people who lead us. And not only in the presidential elections in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate, but as well, you get to pick your local leaders as well. And that, by the way, has far more impact to you than anything on the real the presidential level. 
your local your local zoning ordinances, your local property taxes, your local services provided, that's all your local community, whether that's your city or town government, your county government, or even your state government. So you should know what things are going on. And the reality is, is we have a system in place which banks on people not knowing. So if you're in Roseville, I'm not in Roseville, I'm in Hopkins. If you're in Roseville, you better be paying attention to your school board race. Because if you don't, you can't then be surprised at what gets put on your school board and what mentalities are going to be encouraged for the children of the school district. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. We'll take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. So, there, you know, and, and since we're talking about elections, uh, the Duluth mayor's race is starting to get a, a, a little bit of interest here. Uh, this is a political letter that was put in there by on uh, the Duluth mayor's race is and basically the the letter says it all here that are the argument the letter is making Duluth mayor's race is not between two Democrats. Ideas and opinions in this letter are those of the writer do not necessarily reflect the stance of the paper. It doesn't matter which candidate I vote for; they're both Democrats. We can lose. That's in quotes. We, or we can't lose. We can't lose. You know, that's in quotes. I've heard the sentiment a few times now from like-minded friends and associates um, that uh, the that, that basically in, – in one second here. The, the, the thing basically decided to be fickle on me here. Um, I heard the sentiment now like-minded friends and associates with regard to the upcoming mayor's election between incumbent mayor Emily Larson and challenger Roger Reinert. Larson is the officially endorsed DFL candidate as a secure personal endorsement from party leaders, including Governor Walls. Reinhardt has previously been elected as Democrat for one term in the Minnesota Senate. So, you know, they, they both, you know, you know, have been there on the DFL side. While Larson has received a formal backing of the party, Reinhardt has shifted lanes to accommodate the circumstances of his candidacy by labeling himself as purple. He aims to pull support from voters who think of him as a Democrat as well as anti-Larson conservatives who are making hay out of the unique opportunity to siphon votes from the progressive pond. In truth, why should party affiliation or endorsement matter to Democrats in Duluth's mayoral election, which is technically a nonpartisan contest? And why don't we all long for a little more purple amidst the disheartening morass of polarization politics? The answer is this. The path that Reinhardt is taking, playing both sides as a populist, purporting that the Duluth um, um, – uh, purporting that the Duluth city government is broken, hitting Larson through a negative lens for problems that frustrate Duluth citizens but plague countless similar cities as well. The uh, promising to do better for everyone, the unrealistic, uh, disingenuous um, uh, result there. So basically it's – it's in the article here is, 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 is it's the Duluth Tribune, so it, it does this stuff. Um, it's It basically goes on to talk about how the – he is he's pandering to the republicans quite a bit and and that 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 is that's not you know that that's not necessarily uh you know a democrat and it doesn't mean and and to a point 
I agree with the, the concept of the letter. The letter is basically that, you know, you can't just necessarily go on out there and, and you know, you know be against someone who work, wants to work across the aisle. But there's guys like Tim Walls who do work across the aisle, but at the end of the day, he is, um, you know, he, he basically is a guy who is, you know, is first and foremost a – Democrat, the DFLer. Um, I, 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 I'm going to start paying more attention to this Duluth race because I think this is a tactic you're starting to see more and more from Republicans who basically don't have any chance. They've had a few city council candidates in Minneapolis who there was one and gosh it was not that long ago i can't remember what election it was one guy who basically says i'm an independent thinker but i lean left and while well, you find out well he ran as a republican a few different times and i and i think that if you're a moderate republican it's tough times for you on one side you have a party that unless you pass the most far right extensive agenda that you basically are not welcome within the party. And and, and and on the other side of it, you have the Democrats who generally are you know somewhat progressive. But the reality is, is it's gotten to the point, if you're a moderate Republican, it's easier for you to lie and say, I'm a Democrat, let me run as a DFLer, than it is to run as a Republican. And I mean, you just had, was it the mayor of Dallas? who a lot of people for a long time has speculated is actually a Republican, has now officially changed parties to the Republican Party, ran as a Democrat, won as a Democrat, and now is, oh, I'm actually a Republican. And I think you're going to see this more and more and more. And the reality is is you've got to educate yourself on these candidates. And if you are seeing a DFLer who's ignoring traditional DFL allies so that they could meet with Republican allies. Is that really a DFLer? Duluth is a deep blue city. I mean, it is progressive. I mean, it puts most of Minneapolis St. Paul to shame. So the only way you're going to win is if you can play yourself off as a Democrat. Now, Reinhardt did run as a Democrat, and I'll be honest with you. You go up there into northern Minnesota, it's it's you 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 it definitely the Democrats up there generally run a little bit more towards the moderate side, if not the Republican side. Absolutely, it, it it's so. I mean, I'm not necessarily saying. I mean, how many Democrats are up on the Iron Range that are pro mining? There are tons. And even one just like, okay, this has never been done environmentally safe. This has never been – this is – let's repeat that. This has never been done environmentally safe. Um, at the same time, I will make sure I understand you – know, I want to make sure we, we, we touch on one thing, which is a, a sensitive subject for progressives. And we can we can tie in Mary Moriarty here in Minneapolis. Mary Moriarty is not going to win re-election. I, I'm I'm sorry, she's just not, because we have had now multiple cases where people have been involved in murders, murders where there's a dead person, 
And the mentality is, well, their brain isn't developed, which can I just say for the life of me, how insulting that is to every 15-year-old or 16-year-old who didn't murder somebody, which is, news alert, the vast majority of 15- and 16-year-olds who did not murder somebody. You sit there and you, you say, well, we, we can't give this, this, this person who murdered somebody a serious jail sentence. Their brain's not developed. That ignores the fact that the vast majority of 15 and 16-year-olds do not murder people. It'd be one thing if there was, you know, a murder a day by a 15 or 16-year-old, and there's just not. And if the murder a days were happening in, in all, everywhere— because 15 and 16-year-olds, they, you know, they, they still don't know that you can't shoot someone with a gun. No, wait, what are you going to do? That's not what's going on here. These are crimes. And I'm not saying that there is not encouragement or trickery or any of this stuff. But the reality is to go on out there and just sort of say, we're going to, on a theory, hope that this person who murdered somebody or helped murder somebody won't go down a bad path again. And like I said, in many places where they have tried this, guess what? It's not gone well. San Francisco was one of the latest ones where basically they they recalled their their district attorney and basically said this is not working. There are some very big problems here that you just, on the progressive side, that you just cannot throw your hands in the air and say, well, people just need to get over it encampments that's a pretty big problem that's a huge problem and it's a problem which is multifaceted not only do you have a lack of resources available to help people who are on the streets but you do also have a tremendous amount of pushback anytime someone tries to build a homeless shelter to deal with homeless individuals because the local community around that facility also says, well, we want to help the homeless, but just not here. Very Christian. But you can't just shrug your shoulders and say, you know, let them camp on private property and act as if when the person who owns the property says, well, I'd rather not have them there or when there's actual health concerns about the camp encampment that you basically just shrug your shoulders and say they just have to deal with it no you have to have a better plan of place of then just ignoring that problem you see these are the, these are the kind of things don't get me wrong i think we all want a better world but and i said this before when i was in portland and i went out to portland and they have a very different mentality towards homelessness in, in Portland, Oregon, where they basically say, you know, just you can be homeless, you can be on the streets, we don't care. And in turn, if you, but as long as you do not bother or harass anyone, you're fine. And as I said, okay, after walking through Portland and, and walking past people who clearly reeked to high hell, People who were scrambling through trash cans to find half-lit cigarette butts, stuff like that, leaving piles of trash on the ground. I said, all you're doing is basically giving people the ability to ignore the problem. And that that's not solutions. 
shrugging your shoulders and saying, I don't know what to do, that doesn't solve any problems. And yeah, homelessness is a complicated problem. Charging in crimes is a complicated problem. But these are the traps that progressives are falling into. You have to have better answers than, I don't know. You have to have a better game plan. This is one of the reasons I'd mock the Green Party forever. Great. I get it. Earth stuff. Tell me what your military policy is. Uh, that, that's not important. We want to do this. No, it is a fairly important thing. You need to have a policy on that. But what happens is through your inaction, through your inability to deal with the crisis, through your shrugging of your shoulders of these legitimate issues, you open the door for someone who's really not a Democrat to come on in there and basically win an election. And once again, Reinhardt, I'm not quite sure. He did run as a Democrat. They do run a little bit more moderate up there. But he has been getting a lot of pandering from the, the right and I mean, he, and he's not running as a Democrat. He's running as purple. He's running as I will go with the other side as much as I'll go with my side. That's what purple means. I'm not really blue. I'm more purple. Well, yeah, we all are. But at the end of the day, I vote Democrat. Sure, there's one or two issues I have that are more on the conservative side, but I'm not about to vote for Republicans. Period. So you got a problem there in Duluth, and I, and I don't know what you do. I mean, all you can do is make the best dis- judgment you can. But on one side, you have a candidate who claims to be a Democrat who does seem to be snuggling up more to the Republicans than to the progressive side of the party in a town that's very progressive. On the other side, you have a progressive mayor who basically is being attacked fairly you know, you know, viciously for problems which partially are the fact that they're not being addressed is her fault. So where do you go? I don't live there. Good luck, Duluth. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. We'll take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205 is the phone number. Um, staying in Duluth here, I saw this story and all right. uh, a Catholic group for students at the University of Minnesota Medical School in Duluth that opposes gender-affirming care is fracturing the small rural-focused program. The student section of the Catholic Medical Association, which also includes students enrolled at the University of Duluth, Minnesota Duluth Campus of College of Pharmacy, um, formed in 2021. It aligns with Catholic beliefs that largely oppose gender-affirming care for minors, which includes medications that suppress puberty and hormones for older teens, as well as contraception and abortion, according to the website. My days are filled with so many lectures and guidelines that I knew that were not right or ordered at all, and they are most definitely against our beliefs as Catholics, wrote Emma Pirro, the first president of the group, in an essay on the site. The Duluth campus at the U's medical program, where most students stay for two years before moving on to the Twin Cities or a rural town for training, focuses on family medicine in rural areas and Native American communities. That rural focus has some fellow students worrying about those beliefs will affect their future patient care, particularly where gender care is involved. My biggest concern is many of these students will be working in rural areas, and there's already a lack of access to that type of care, said third-year medical student Morgan Johnson. These patients will be at higher risk than they already were. Now, 
I, I, I have a very, you know, linear thought process on this sort of thing. If you want to become a doctor, but there are certain people you don't want to treat, then don't become a doctor. Don't, don't all of a sudden, you know, or, or if, if, if you, if you, if you're going to have your religion override your medical oath, then go become a veterinarian. Then go become a veterinarian. Don't don't become a doctor for human beings, because that this is the idea that I mean, you could have if we tolerate this sort of thing. If you have someone who is a who believes their religion thinks cancer is great. And they're the only doctor in a county, in a rural county, where there are cancer patients. Can you trust that person to basically give fair treatment? What if you get someone who's anti-vax? And you have someone that comes in and says, well, I'd like to get uh, the, the MMR vaccine for my kid. And they say, well, sorry. You're part of the lunatic fringe, parent. Why are you here? You need to go. You go to those liberal places where you can get your vaccinations. If you don't want to do credited, I mean, and this is this is insanity to me. If you want on the truth, these are accepted, tested, medically examined procedures which have been deemed to be. Perfectly fine. Many of them with tons of, of, of mental health therapy to, go, to help people go through transitions and stuff like this. And for you to basically say, well, I don't like it, so you're not going to do it. That is the epitome of anti-freedom, if you ask me. That's the epitome of anti-freedom. And I know, and I, by the way, I already know anti-vax guys like, well, wait a second, Matt McNeil. What about all these people that, that, that didn't want to get vaccinated that you were, you were this? I never said people should get forced to get vaccinated. The problem you guys had was this. You didn't get, want to get vaccinated. That's fine. But then what you need to do is accept the responsibility of your decision which means you probably shouldn't be around people without a mask on. You probably shouldn't be be you know demanding that the sports bars be open so you can go get your chicken wings and beer because somehow you've ev- convinced yourself that you not getting a vaccination has made you impervious to a disease, which is not true. The problem there is not the fact that you chose not to get vaccinated. The problem there is that you expected the world to basically cave to your wishes and that's not how this goes. And that's what I'm, I mean, I, I would be, I mean, let's face it here. As a matter of fact, it, it, it's, it's it, what I find to be interesting about this is think about the Catholic faith and now think about what procedures this person might be put into that if they're in one of these extreme mentalities of Catholicism, that they basically go on out there and say, no, I'm not going to do this. Let's say a mom comes in and this person discovers that there is a condition with her pregnancy where if she does not get an abortion of the child, she does not abort the child, even though the parent clearly loves, wants to have the child, that the mom will die. Will the doctor tell her the truth? 
Will that doctor tell her, oh, I, you'd better go, you know, I'm not going to do this because it's against my religious beliefs, but you can go to, here's another clinic that's nearby, they will do this procedure so you can save your life. But I would rather have you die because of my religious beliefs, so just go with it. Or would she just say, perfectly fine, perfectly fine, and then try to scream religious freedom after the mom dies because they, they, they had the, the knowledge that her, her life was in jeopardy. I think that this is a huge problem because it's it's easy for them to basically just sort of say, well, okay, so how many kids would they have to work with here? That's irrelevant. It's the fact that they're applying a religious standard to what they're going to do with the community as a whole, that their religious standard has to be the religious standard of the community. And I don't think that that is – you don't want – if you don't want to basically – apply medicine fairly, then go be a vet. Then go be a vet. Don't deal with humans. Um, this in a city that bans conversion therapy, she said, in a state with a shield law that says it won't support any state prosecution of parents or uh, patient, parents or doctors providing gender-affirming care for children. My biggest concern is many of these students will be working in rural areas. There's already a lack of access at that time of care. Conversion therapy is the practice of attempting to change a non-heterosexual person's sexual orientation to gender identity to align with the heterosexual or uh, cisgender norms. Um, had, uh, messages to Piro and several others, past and present members of the group, which received $180 each for the past few years from the University of Minnesota's Medical Student Council, funded by the university, were not returned. Interim regional campus dean Kevin Diebel said he wasn't aware of any complaints made to faculty about the group and hadn't received any himself. The school teaches its students to care for patients for all backgrounds, he said, and its approach to controversial topics is to teach them to transfer patients to another provider if they must, but they always ensure the patient receives care. There's where the question is. And because I want to go back to I want to go back to the term the words that they were using here. Um, the days are filled with so many lectures and guidelines that I knew were not right or ordered at all, and they were most definitely against my belief as Catholic on this. So Emma Pirro has made the decision that what is right and what is wrong. She she has made the decision that it's not about transferring to someone else. It's basically saying, no, that this is not right. And then the question comes in is, would they transfer someone who wants to get an accepted medical procedure done to another doctor if their personal religions were offended by that? Um, our hope is that message gets carried on. The students take that heart and put it into practice, Diebel said. Uh, to second-year medical students, Jamie Sharp, it appears the group is working against the best practices that students are taught regarding LGBTQ care, and it makes the class uncomfortable, he said. It's really important to, for trans folks, queer folks, women, to feel comfortable working in this field and feeling like they would be safe and free of discrimination throughout the educational process. But the content of the group's website's tense class discussions and the very existence of the group makes it hard to coexist with them and trust them as colleagues and fellow professionals. I'm Jewish, but my religion will never affect my practice and make it so someone gets different treatment from someone else because of their identity. Good for you, Jamie. Go all my best. Is it Jamie Sharp? Yeah, Jamie. Jamie, all my best. I hope you find a, a good job there. Uh, someone would be lucky to have you. Well, you already seem to have the, your head in the right place. Uh, 
you you got to nip this crap in the bud. You you can't you you got to nip this crap in the bud, and you can't you cannot just allow people to so openly say, "Well, if it's against my religion, I'm not going to help you." And maybe this is this is something that the Minnesota State Medical Licensing Board needs to take into account. That and and once again, the question here is not okay. I'm sorry, I it just I, I I can't serve you on this. And I'm going to send you to a different doctor. They're going to be able to, to, to take care of you. And that process doesn't include a long lecture about why God hates that person, a long lecture about how you're going to burn in hell, or a doctor who is asked this being told, that care is not available, have a good day, and do not come back to my office. And you see, is this is it, it, it seems to me what people want is, is they want to be able to take a stance without any accountability for said stance. That the rest of us have to sit there and basically accept their version of the world at the world's detriment. And and I'm I'm just it's stuff like this. By the way, just on a quick side note, and once again, I'm for for all the religious folks out there. Uh, you do or don't do whatever it is you do or don't want to do. I'm, I'm Christian, but I used to be Catholic, and I'm not part of the Catholic Church anymore. And you know why? Is because of this. The entire concept of Jesus was to welcome people in and take care of people and take care of the sick, take care of the needy, welcome in strangers from strange lands, feed the hungry. It wasn't about hate, 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 hate. And I'm telling you what I'm not going to do. And you wonder why pews are getting are, are, are getting emptier and emptier in many churches. It's because of stuff like this. And the reality is, is I, I don't think it's going to be able to fix itself. I don't know where things go. But as long as this is, I mean, it's. I've got my children who are on college campuses and they have these these Catholic groups and you know it's always about we're going to go protest the abortion clinic. It's never about we're going to go feed hungry people. It's never about we're going to go make sure the homeless are off the street and get some warm food and a place to rest tonight. It's not ever it's it's never the we're going to go find, you know, new immigrants and welcome strangers into strange lands. It's never any of that. It's never that. That's never on the agenda. That's never on the game plan. It's hate, 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 hate. And I just, it is embarrassing to where to see where this is going. And I think that unless you basically, if unless the state medical board starts putting some standards in place that are very clear that you do not give people religious lectures about why you're not going to give them medical care, and you basically say that you, you have a duty that if someone comes in and they want an, an accepted medical procedure done and you don't want to do it, you need to get, make sure that person gets to a facility and a care team that actually does believe they're there for the betterment of that patient, not for an extended religious doctrine. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950.
AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205 is the phone number. Uh, I, the, I, I did want to mention this. I, I saw this was talking about making some bad mistakes, making a bad decision. And the Minneapolis music venue and eatery Ice House issued apology on Monday night after taking heat over the weekend for canceling a, a Latinx community dance party last minute to instead host the more lucrative corporate booking. The higher-paying gig, it turned out, was the official after-party of comedian Dave Chappelle's Exile Energy Center performance on Sunday, or excuse me, on Saturday. Ice House Management and its social media posts after, once again, they dumped the, the, the community dance party for Dave Chappelle and got pushback um, considering it's uh, Lat- uh, Latinx Heritage Month to cancel the Latinx community dance party. We hear you, Ice House Management said. We're sorry and particularly understand the optics of having done this during the, the Heritage Month. An eclectic, multifaceted facility on Nicollet Avenue that books jazz, electronic, acoustic, and any rock acts, and the occasional comedy show like a five-night run by Chappelle in 2017. Ice House was supposed to host another um, party on Saturday, a Noche uh, Shingana party on Saturday. The event it has uh, welcomed before. The dance parties are helmed by a DJ, Italian Knight, and Queen Duin whose uh, mission statement is it centers on highlighting Latinx music and culture, and it's empowered to create a safe space for women and queer people. The word uh, is Spanish slang for aggressive or pushy woman. In a social media post that went up on Saturday, Talia Knight and Queen uh, Duin complained that the cancellation was being made on such short notice. They choose a corporate buyout over our show and let us know this morning, the DJs wrote. We had absolutely no control or say in this decision. We were deeply saddened and upset that this happened. Of course they did. Okay, first first of all, as much as, as you might want to get upset about this. Well, no, I mean, it, okay, let, me, let, me, let me take that back and reframe it. You have a right to be upset about this. They're not going to stop doing this. You know, they have a chance to get a picture with Dave Chappelle sitting in their facility having a good time. Even even if they they had really thought about this, which I don't think they did, I think they still would have said, eh, sorry. You know, or at the very least tried to find a neighboring facility or a you know a sister bar or whatever they could hold the other event at. Because of course they're going to. That's just kind of the general nature of this sort of thing. It's it's a very Republican thing to ask for forgiveness, not ask for permission. That's how Republicans operate. And in and that's I mean that's that should probably be <laughs> that should be the, the what they put on a lot of the gravestones for Republicans over the years. It's like yeah, you know I I uh, just ask for uh, ask for forgiveness, not for permission. But. You're not going to stop this sort of thing from happening because there is such a demand for the high-end, glitzy events. And Ice House, I guarantee you, as much as it's a mistake that they did this, Ice House will end up getting, and tragically and sadly, get more traction from the Dave Chappelle after party than they will for this as far as future credibility goes. And so – yeah, I just I think what you're going to get is this is they're just not going to have your dance party anymore. And that's and that's and they'll say, "Well, what you going to do? We might we might have a, an event going on here." So, 
Uh, when we come back, we're going to take a break here towards the top of the hour. But when I do come on back, I got to bring up something. If you missed it, David McCollum passed away. Now, if you don't know who he was, he was uh, Ducky on NCIS. He was on The Man from Uncle. He died at 90 years old. But in case you missed it, there's something that pretty much everyone who is 40 and younger know this guy for and love this guy for. I'll explain that here, and you'll agree in just a second. Hour two, that's coming up next. Hour number two of the show here on your Tuesday. Matt and Brett here. Patrick here as well. Good to have you with us here. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. David McCollum, did you ever watch NCIS? Or, I mean, ever were you a fan of the old show, The Man from Uncle? Uh, I didn't watch NCIS, but I know who he plays on that show. He, he Ducky. has a very distinct look. Yeah, if Ducky, he was a great character. As a matter yeah. of fact, I think he was one of the best characters on that show, and I loved. You know, he was he was always very good. Just a, a great seasoned actor. Uh, the man from Uncle is where he uh, he got his start. Uh, that was a James Bond ripoff, a TV show that was there. Um, and 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 was it Robert Vaughn? Yeah, he played Robert uh, Robert Vaughn played Napoleon Solo. And what did, what was his character's name on there? Um, Ilian Kuryankin, I think it was, it was 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 his character on there. So the spy thing from the 1960s. He, he passed away at 90, natural causes, good run. His, I will say this, he has been part of the Man from Uncle is not really an iconic show. Even when I was in the 60s and 70s when I was a kid, I didn't know that much about it. I knew the show existed, but it wasn't really in reruns that much. I just don't think it played that long. I think it was two seasons. Uh, maybe three, uh, da, 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 yeah, maybe three seasons. Um, but it, so it wasn't really in syndication. NCIS, of course, you know, he just he he figured that character out and he actually made oh, totally. Yeah. I think that the the, the 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 relationships that he had with other people on that show would, would made it really good. Um, but there's something else that he did that for most people he is far no, more known about. And it involves something else that he did which is in the 60s, he recorded four albums for Capitol Records. Okay? All right. He is responsible for one of the greatest hip-hop uh, hooks, samples of all time. We have, this is uh, David McCollum. This is The Edge, I believe is the name of this cut, isn't it, Patrick? That's right. For everyone out there, you're about to have your mind blown because this is Ducky from NCIS. I think 1967 is the year of this. Go ahead and play this song. Now, how much Dr. Dre do you have? So he's in this somehow? Well, that's his song. That's that's David Collins' song. That's his song, and it is the it is the hip hop (laughs) hip hop hook to the next episode with Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg from <laughs> ni- and from 1999. <laughs> How like, many people would have known? I certainly didn't know that. I, I, I saw that. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. It, 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 let's just put it this way. How good is that? I mean, how good is it? I can only imagine this guy is on NCIS and he's getting Dre money. 
You know, <laughs> I don't know if you got – usually they do play the samples. Uh, they pay the samples some royalties. You think they would, yeah. I think they do, especially since it's – that's basically a, a good chunk of the song right there. I thought you were going to trick me like somehow his voice is in that song somehow. No, no. No, that's, that's the, the yeah. original song from 1967. It's <laughs> The insane. Edge from David McCollum, and it is, of course, was used by Dr. Dre as, as one of his greatest hip-hop hooks. And mm. uh, so you know, Ducky has that heading for him as well. So there you go. Staying kind of like Betty White, staying relevant well into her 90s, yeah. Him as well. Well, yeah. Well, Betty White died what what age? Do you remember? She, was she 100 at that I mean, point? I think or so. like 99? She, yeah. She might have been 100. It's a good run. McCollum at 90, yeah, it's a good run. You can't, you can't. Well, consider, yeah, in the Dr. Dre song and now on NCIS. I mean, he's staying relevant. I've discovered something about Donald Trump. He's a hobbit. He's, he is many things. He's a, a six, foot, six foot three, two hundred and fifteen pound <laughs> hobbit. Which, by the way, keep that in mind as I read the story because I think we're all going to appreciate here in a second. Trump has long been mocked for his unhealthy food habits, but a newly released book by Cassidy Hutchinson, the former president's gluttony, was on full display. She recalled the lunch that she set up with Kevin McCarthy, Representative Liz Cheney, and Representative Steve Scalise at the White House. Kevin was the last guest to leave after the lunch ended. Uh, Hutchinson recalls in the book. He asked me to walk him to his car. When we were outside, he told me that the president had seemed annoyed at lunch and is not his usual self. I explained that he had not been himself for a while, that COVID was getting to him, and he wasn't getting enough human interaction. Later that day, Hutchinson and Chief of Staff Mark Meadows were called to the dining room by Trump. Called to the dining room by Trump. He was still in the dining room, she added. I was prepared to be reprimanded for having invited Liz Cheney, ready to take the blame and be told you so from Mark. The president was eating his second lunch. His actual lunch and looked cross, she says, writing, indicating Trump ate a smaller first lunch with the members. So look at this. Like, I've got my diet plate. Got my diet plate. He's got, he's got like three Big Macs in the back room waiting for him there. <laughs> oh, delicious Big Mac. You get me. Those are his real friends. That's right. That's right. He didn't want to meet with Cheney. He didn't want to meet with uh, with uh, Scalise. He didn't want to meet with McCarthy. He wanted to meet with the you know Monster Burger and Frisco Burger. And, <laughs> Hello, Whopper. I've missed you so most of all. <laughs> Where's my ketchup tank? <laughs> uh, Mark asked if everything was going okay. The president immediately started to complain, but not about Liz Cheney, about Steve Scalise, who she said had tried, he had tried to dominate the conversation. Steve had been acting like an obsessed fan with no concept of personal space, the story continues. <laughs> he kept bringing his chair closer and closer to me. Wow, really? It's <laughs> dancing on the line there. He's getting too close to my face when he spoke. Like he doesn't know I can, I can hear him fine, the president <laughs> said. He stressed several times that he did not want to be put into that situation again. So, remember from the Lord of the Rings, when I think it's, it's is it Perry has, a, a, they're talking about first lunch, second lunch, stuff like this. He's a hobbit. He has second lunch. <laughs> he does, that's the only thing it could be. Second lunch. I could picture you're annoyed in that meeting and you're thinking about that second lunch the whole time. You've got uh, Steve Scalise doing the Seinfeld close talker thing. Is there, there like a, is there like a table next to him with like a silver domed over a platter and he's just fantasizing looking at the, it's under there. It's There's second lunch right there. And I got these three idiots here. I need my second lunch. I talk about getting close to my face. Oh. 
If you had a thought bubble, you'd just be cheeseburgers in the thought oh. bubble the whole time. Uh, yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 make Mary McCheese the Admiral of the Navy and, and, and get out. Get out and leave me be to myself. Maybe he was planning to have some of the presidential portraits replaced with Ronald McDonald and Grimace and the Hamburglar. Oh, well, the Hamburglar's got to be his enemy. Well, no, there's Man Who Steals. We've got an APB out in the Man Who Steals Hamburgers. No, Grimace. Who can remember? I mean, our 26th president, Grimace. Uh, he he was fantastic there, and uh, just always uh, just a, a, a delight. Uh, you know, five foot or six foot three. 215 pounds. Second lunch. How many second lunches did this guy have? Unbelievable. I, I, I will say this. I don't know how the guy does it. Because I'll, like, I mean, I'm driving across the country. I've, like, drove down to South Carolina a few times. And we're trying to find some place to eat that's not going to basically kill me. You know, because that's, I'm now 55 years old. I just can't, I can't do that anymore. You know, so I need – give me a sandwich or something like this. Not a gas station sandwich, a sandwich <laughs> sandwich. You know, it's – it's you have to have something like this. This guy just constantly puts down the fast food. And I can't – I can't even – oh, man. That's just – that's just – he must have stock in Metamucil or something. That's what I, <laughs> that's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, you would think being almost 80 years old and you're just eating a second lunch well, apparently. And it's, and- if I was to give my 80-year-old mother – the diet that she gave, I'd be arrested for cruel and inhuman punishment. And I'm sorry, the McNuggets are what did you in? You're going to jail. You're going to jail. Second lunch. Hello, second lunch. <laughs> I just, I was he wearing a Burger King hat during the entire meeting? <laughs> oh, we just got these. I just wear them around. It's not that I have four Whoppers over there waiting for me. I just like being the king. <laughs> <laughs> Although funny. I think he's more of a McDonald's guy than a Burger King. Oh guy. yeah, he, he he certainly is. And by the way, and I also was reading about the the the, the absolute because they could not give. They they felt the feeling was they could not just bring a McDonald's into the White House. That they could not just open up a McDonald's for the president. And so it, the fits that the White House staff had trying to make. The McDonald's versions of these things was is if you if you ever read about it, it's just yeah they were like okay here I am five star chef ready for you know I, I'm I'm known for my my three French restaurants and all this stuff you want me to make what again McNuggets McNuggets with a sweet and sour chipotle dipping sauce okay sure sure yeah let me get right on the McNuggets <laughs> you want an apple pie but I want to be in a rectangle form and deep fried really okay I can do that. Nine five two nine four six six two zero five. Hobbits aside, uh, you—I I don't think Patrick Cooligan's a hobbit. Uh, you, of course, get to chat with Patrick Cooligan over the Minnesota Reformer. What do you got today? Yeah, so we're going to be uh, a revisiting a column that he wrote last week, talking about the importance of implementing a lot of these great programs that the DFL put in place. And obviously, we had a little bit of the fiasco with the cannabis management and that person, Ugh. unfortunately, resigning on the first day. So we'll relate that back to that conversation we had last week. Mm. But we'll also touch on his column on SROs as well, since this controversy seems to be dying down without a special session. Yeah. What do you know? I guess we never needed one in the first place. And the minute all of a sudden the the, the, the people that were protesting this realized they weren't going to get paid for four months of SRO work, all of a sudden, oh, yeah, we can go back in the schools. We'll be fine with this. They have no problem with it. Yeah, it was all political. That's all it was. Uh, here it is, Patrick Cooligan with Brett right here on AM 950.
AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon, and we are joined by the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. That is Patrick Kulikan, who is going to be talking about some of the news stories that they have been working on today. And coming up, we are going to be chatting about comments from Tina Smith and Amy Klobuchar on the scandal with New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez and whether they think he should resign. We'll also be talking about Patrick's cool. Patrick's column uh, on SROs and the fact that the Republicans have uh, very much successfully used that as a wedge issue. And plus, we will follow up on a topic we talked about last week, and that is the importance of implementing many of these great programs that the DFL passed during the past session. We talked about last week the importance of implementation, and lo and behold, we have an example of uh, maybe not implementing things so well with the Cannabis Commissioner resigning on her first day. We'll be talking about all of those. Hey, thanks so much for coming back on today. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. Well, let's start off talking about our two U.S. Senators from Minnesota, our two DFL Senators, Tina Smith and Amy Klobuchar. Because as you've probably seen in the news, at least in the U.S. Senate, New Jersey Democratic Senator Bob Menendez has been facing a a growing course of people calling for him to resign, including several members of the U.S. Senate. He, is, of course, is involved in a corruption scandal with uh, probably my favorite part, the fact that he has about $100,000 of gold bars just sitting around his house because who doesn't carry gold bars? But we do now have some comments from Tina Smith and Amy Klobuchar after uh, largely not saying a whole lot about the Bob Menendez scandal yesterday. As today, we do have some information from Amy Klobuchar saying that she would like to see Bob Menendez record. Uh, resign from the Senate. So we do have Amy's stance. Have we heard anything from Tina Smith on whether she is calling for uh, Senator Menendez to step down as well, or are we still kind of waiting to hear from her as well? No, she says uh, that these are serious charges, uh, but that everyone is entitled to due process. Um, And uh, also, uh, we should note that uh, Senator Smith is apparently uh, tested positive for COVID-19, so she's not able to get back on a plane and head back to Washington. Uh, she's not uh, suffering serious symptoms. Um, but uh, Senator Klobuchar yesterday uh, also said serious, called the user serious allegations and said there ought to be an investigation by the U.S. Uh, Senate Ethics Committee. She stopped short of calling for his resignation, uh, but she seems to have uh, come around to resignation today. Um, perhaps notably after a, a dozen of her Democratic colleagues in the Senate uh, also called for Menendez's resignation, and most notably, I think, uh, Cory Booker, his New Jersey colleague. Um, I uh, I was a little confused yesterday and even over the, over the weekend why there wasn't more of uh, a drumbeat on this. Um, um, the, you know, the, the question of, of whether or not Menendez is... is uh, Innocence will prove guilty or deserve uh, due process. I mean, those, that's a given. It's just a question of whether or not he uh, should be serving in the U.S. Senate after uh, really embarrassing the institution and, um, and and how distracting this is all going to be as he tries to serve and also run again in 24. And then also it's a distraction uh, to uh, his colleagues and, and uh, to the, the very people that he's supposed to be championing uh, there in New Jersey, um, uh, also that uh, he can hang on to power. Um, and uh, so I think this is the right call. Uh, it makes it much easier for Democrats uh, to run 
um, in 24 to hold the Senate and the White House when they they uh, um, can run with clean hands, um, especially running against uh, this Republican tater bear in, in former President Trump who faces 90-something charges. Uh, so you're running an anti-corruption campaign, and it's much easier to do that without Menendez. Yeah, absolutely. And then you just look at the fact that, well, at least we have Democrats calling for this guy Menendez to resign when you compare that to uh, Republicans, as you brought up with Donald Trump, obviously facing those 91 criminal charges. And we can even look at Texas with Ken Paxton uh, being acquitted and not being removed from his position, despite facing uh, many corruption allegations as well. I uh, want to move on to another story, and this has to do actually with your column that you wrote recently titled Heat But No Light About School Safety, as we're now going to be switching gears and talking about SROs in schools. So it's been mentioned on this show many times, I know Matt has been bringing this up many times, that the debate over SROs in schools is a very much political theater for the Republicans. And that certainly seems to be the case with police now returning to many schools without that special session that Republicans were asking for. The debate was largely over whether police and schools should be able to hold students in a prone position, meaning basically on their stomach. So you can't put a kid down on a stomach and then... Hold, put that person in a hold that prevents them from speaking or breathing. That was, uh, as I understand, largely in the new law that was passed in the state legislature, which to me seems to be kind of uncontroversial since we did pass this a few years ago, at least when it applied to prisons without any controversy. So I'm curious, Patrick, because you brought this up in your column, and I think it's an important point. What are the actual numbers for SROs in schools? Do we even have many schools with police officers? Because the framing we get from Republicans is that, well, basically every school in Minnesota has a police officer serving, which uh, generally is not the case. Yeah, there was a lot of alarmist rhetoric that uh, tried to scare us all um, about how with the these police departments pulling their officers uh, over the lack of clarity, quote-unquote, about the law, that suddenly uh, all the schools had become uh, dangerous places. And um, the reality is that uh, certainly nationwide, uh, fewer than half of public schools have an SRO uh, or police officer in school um, once a week. And in Minnesota, we don't have real recent data on it, but there was a survey done in 2014 that showed it was uh, less than 30%. I expect it's probably higher because of school shootings and communities um, have decided to put police in schools, although I'm not certain that it's actually going to make your school, uh, the typical school, much safer. But uh, that just gives you some indication. We're talking about a third of schools. Um, and, and not only that, but then you, you have all these schools where the local police department did not pull their uh, school resource officers, um, and you know you wonder, well, well, why if this is um, if, if the law created such uh, chaos and confusion, uh, why were there so many departments who were fine to instruct their officers to abide by it? Um, but the the idea that there was some school safety a crisis because of this law or because uh, some departments pulled their, their officers out, um, I, it doesn't, doesn't really match the data. 
Well, and speaking of the data, too, you brought up the fact that crime levels for kids has been dropping dramatically over the past 20 years, which doesn't surprise me. But uh, as I'm sure you'll bring up, uh, the the crime rate for kids has been dropping very, very quickly. Uh, I believe, what, almost 80 percent since about 2001, correct? Right. Our, our data recorder, Chris Ingram, um, he tallied up the juvenile arrests. And from 2001 to 2022, the number of teenagers arrested in Minnesota fell from 52,000 to 10,500. So that is a, it's a decrease of almost 80%. Um, you know, and it's possible that, I think it's true, that there's been a concerted effort to keep kids out of this criminal justice mm-hmm. system. But, I mean, that said, we, we're also familiar with, with all the survey data around kids being um, more risk-averse than they used to. they and, and a lot of us think this is kind of a bad thing. They're not learning to drive. Uh, they're not drinking or having sex or dating or even spending time with friends as much because they're sitting in their bedrooms on their phones. Um, so, you know, I don't think that's a great development, but the reality is when you're sitting in your bedroom on your phone, you're not out um, engaging in dangerous behavior. Um, and so just overall, um, this... You know, to use the old-fashioned phrase, juvenile delinquency, it's kind of down. Um, and and so this all this fear around um, kids out there uh, committing crimes and we need to have police in schools also seems misplaced. That said, clearly the pandemic uh, was tough on kids especially, and it, uh, but not just kids. We've seen antisocial behavior amongst kids and adults. I mean, we've all seen the videos of uh, the of uh, airport violence and airplane violence and that kind of thing. And people just seem to be have kind of um, have struggled with their mental health through the pandemic. And that was certainly true uh, probably more than anyone of, of teenagers. So I don't want to minimize uh, that uh, disruption and, and discipline issues uh, are important and we ought to have a discussion about it. Um, I'm just, I'm disappointed that this was a discussion that we had. Yeah, because I, I think as you and I have been talking right now, we've largely established that, yeah, there certainly is some crime am- among youth right now, but not nearly the dramatic spike that's being portrayed right now by Republicans. And then we've also largely established that, well, most schools don't even have police officers within their schools and that this new law that was passed recently really didn't have that much of an impact on SRO. So I guess my next question would be, how did the Republicans nearly get this strategy to successfully work? Because uh, it was kind of a brilliant strategy to all of a sudden make this a wedge issue out of nowhere and kind of uh, catch the DFL largely flat-footed on this when they, they made a big issue out of this over the past few weeks. Yeah, I was well... T- I mean, I can't speak to... I don't have any kind of inside scope on how they uh, managed to uh, pull this off, but I can say, you know, just observing, um, they they rolled it out um, right as the school year started, which was, I think, uh, pretty smart. And then, uh, you know, every few days... Uh, a new a district, often a legislative battleground district, would announce that the the the, the police agency was or pulling their officers from the schools, um, and there was kind of a steady drumbeat of news that way. And then also the Democrats were flat-footed, and um, I think they made some tactical errors in, in how they approached this. To a degree, there was there was not much they could do because they were divided on the issue. They they had some members who probably would have liked to have gone into a special session to repeal the law or change the language, 
Um, then they had others who absolutely are against uh, police and schools uh, completely. Um, but and so there was there was always going to be uh, that uh, vulnerability um, that the Republicans could exploit. Um, and then you know Democrats did some things that were probably ill-advised. Uh, Governor Walls was kind of uh, back and forth on whether or not he was open to a special session. Uh, and uh, Speaker Hortman released a letter. There were two separate uh, Attorney General uh, opinions on the law. Uh, there, the House and Senate progressives kind of leaked a letter that uh, didn't seem to be very well coordinated. So it was, it was a really kind of uh, slapdash response. Um, and um, and and the, and the local news media facing a bit of a maybe a news vacuum of sorts um, to kind of hit everything. You know, every time there was a new uh, incremental uh, turn of the screw, as we say, uh, it, the news media covered it, and so we wound up with a, with a month of stories. Yeah, we largely did, and the Republicans did do a nice job, kind of uh, portraying that issue as well, but. Uh... We ended up not having a special session, and lo and behold, the issue will hopefully uh, begin to fade over the next few uh, weeks and months as SROs do end up uh, returning to schools. You can read more about that column again over at minnesotareformer.com titled Heat But No Light About School Safety. I want to move on to another story you guys have been working on and relate that to the column that you wrote last week talking about the implementation of many of these government programs that the DFL passed over the past uh, year or so. And let's go to the Department of Cannabis, where cannabis entrepreneur Aaron Dupree, who was set up to uh, lead the Department of Cannabis at the uh, state government level, was uh, basically accused and caught selling edible products with twice the amount of legally allowed THC. She had been promoting her products on her store's TikTok account and apparently left those posts up even after her appointment to the public office was made. Governor Tim Walls originally praised Dupree's record of maintaining compliance with state laws and regulations. And then at least two people also won court judgments against Dupree for unpaid wages for work she failed to perform. The IRS and the Minnesota Department of Revenue also had outstanding liens against her for tens of thousands of dollars in unpaid taxes going back to 2011. So... As I said, this goes exactly to what we were talking about last week and the importance of the implementation of the programs. Certainly uh, passing the programs is only the first step, but now you got to implement them. And it definitely looks like the vetting process, uh, to say the least, uh, could have been a lot stronger with Dupree, given the track record we've been seeing uh, come out about her over the past few days. Yeah, I mean, uh, it took reporters... Uh, uh, Star Tribune and NPR reporters all of uh, 24 hours uh, to uh, find the stuff in her background. I mean, that, and and they they found the stuff, and they got it published within 24 hours, which means they probably found the stuff within a few hours. Um, not uh, as the governor himself said, not our not the finest hour. I think was his line. Um, and uh, but I think it, you know, the the, the failure is, is back at the beginning. And that is, uh, why are they uh, turning to someone who's in the industry? And it's not like this is some industry titan either. Mm-hmm. She um, she has a small shop in Apple Valley um, and is apparently selling um, non-compliant products there. Um, rather than find, going to the, somebody who uh, is going to focus on 
the regulatory regime. And that is somebody who's got experience in regulation. It doesn't even have to be cannabis regulation, although there are now almost two dozen states where uh, adult-use cannabis is legal, and therefore you, you could have found a, a regulator from one of those states. But the reality is, is that if you can regulate, you know, if you're a, a skilled regulator, you don't necessarily need that subject matter expertise right up front. Um, and so, and one of one of the risks of regulation is what we call industry capture. So that's, you know, when somebody uh, from the uh, from Wall Street winds up as a as a, the the head of the SEC. Or somebody from the coal industry is regulating uh, worker safety. I mean, this is classic uh, uh, practice in in Republican politics, although it certainly bleeds over into to Democratic administrations as well. And um, usually, um, you usually it's it's a little more concealed than in this case, where they just they hire somebody who runs a THC shop. Um, so it's just baffling. Right on its face, uh, I'm, I was glad to hear, I only saw the headline, but apparently the governor said today at an event that he's really going to focus, uh, they're going to look for a candidate with, with, from the regulatory side. Um, so it was really a, uh, not, not a great uh, moment for the Walls administration, um, and uh, let's hope that they learn their lesson and are going to uh, figure out uh, how to prevent this kind of thing from happening again and, and get the right person in place. Yeah, and I like the point you brought up where I think it's important to bring people into those positions that have experience regulating rather than just bring, bringing someone in from industry. Like I'm remembering when I think it was Scott Pruitt who was the head of the EPA during the Trump administration thinking, well, that guy's directly from the industry he's supposed to regulate. What do you think is necessarily going to happen? Because on its face, it's, you think there, you might think, well, yeah, that makes sense. Let's put someone from the industry in charge of this department. But generally, you do want them to have some experience regulating those as well, because you can certainly run into some of the problems we've had right now, where this could very easily de- delay the timeline for opening many dispensaries around Minnesota and really back up the prod, back up the process, and possibly even lead to a little bit of a lack of trust in the process when all of a sudden, on the first day, we're having someone resign from that position. Yeah, um, I, I think you, you bring up a good point about trust, um, and this is something that we've we've talked about before. That uh, if when if you want government to do things, um, and and Democrats do, uh, then then you need people to trust that uh, the government's going to be run efficiently and competently and fairly, and this kind of thing. Um, you know, I mean, I think it, it's not necessarily going to change anyone's mind about legalization. Um, but this kind of thing, it, it just accumulates um, in the public's mind, and uh, they hear this sort of uh, uh, misfire, and they hear about this stuff over and over again, and pretty soon they, they lose trust in government over the course of uh, years. And, and, and we're in a, a, a years-long, decades-long uh, battle here, um, and you always have to keep that in mind. Absolutely. Well, you can read. Uh, I'd encourage you to go back and uh, check out Patrick's column from last week talking about the implementation and the, uh, the importance of implementing these programs, because, as we said, uh, lo and behold, look at the example this week with the Department of Cannabis. Well, you can read more about all of the great work that the Minnesota Reformer does over at minnesotareformer.com. Again, go to minnesotareformer.com. As we have been speaking with Patrick Hulakan, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. As always, hey, thanks for coming on the show today. It's always a pleasure. 
All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950. Would you let animals pick your insurance? Do you really need to experience mayhem to get the best rates? Or how about a celebrity quarterback or fake university say? Hey, I'm 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. You know, it's we, I, I, we've been out, we, we didn't have to do anything for so long. The music and I decided to take a nap. <laughs> uh, 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205 is the phone number. Um, so I, I want to... He's out there again, Dean Phillips, said in a podcast released Monday, he's considering challenging President Biden for the Democratic Supponents nomination in 2024. When I'm thinking about it, I haven't ruled it out. Phillips told political strategist Steve Schmidt on a Friday of his podcast, The Warning. I think there are people who are more proximate, better prepared to campaign with national organizations, national name recognition, which I do not possess. I'm concerned that there is no alternative. All right, why don't you run, then get trounced, and then act like everyone else was the problem. Phillips, a three-term congressman, has been a vocal supporter of another Democratic candidate jumping into the presidential race and challenging Biden. He's urging Biden to pass the torch to another candidate. Phillips has previously told Axios that he's mulling launching his own intra-party bid, but if no one challenges Biden, he said last month that we wants Biden to invite people to the primary stage to promote competition. I'm concerned that something could happen between now and next November that would make the Democratic Convention in Chicago an unmitigated disaster, Phillips told Schmidt. And for a party that's acting like adults in the room, thank goodness I'm concerned that we are not as relates to our electoral strategy, so I'm considering it. I do think there's some time for someone to enter. I'm still encouraged others who are better prepared right now to run a great campaign. Now, I want to put this against um, an interview Min posted with Governor Walls this weekend. Governor Walls and President Joe Biden is not too old for re-election campaign, cast out on the merits of bumping former President Donald Trump from the 2024 ballot in Minnesota. I would say we all get older, so be careful what you're asking, Walls, says of Biden. A little bit of wisdom is not a bad thing in regards to removing Biden from the, the, the ticket. The second-term DFL governor answered questions on Saturday about the presidential race, a controversy over school resource officers, the brief tenure as the first cannabis director, and the more interviews with reporter Peter Callahan at MinPost. Wall says he prefers candidates for president that are effective, and he believes Biden fits that bill on the issues like handling COVID-19 pandemic and bringing inflation down after a spike under the president's first term. Someone said he's too old for the job. Obviously not, Wall said. He's got an infrastructure bill passed. I sat in Congress for 12 years, 12 years, and I couldn't see anyone else getting that bill done. So, yeah, he's, he, he deserves, if he wants to run, he can run again. And it, it would be one thing, and Dean Phillips is not about to do this, but if it would be one thing if Dean Phillips said, I think that there should be an age limit to the presidency. I do not think you should be over the age of 70 and be able to run for president. He's not about to do that, though, because he knows that will turn off more voters than it can be. And so he's he's doing this dance where it's the, you know, you know I'm just trying to find middle ground now. Once again, for Dean and all moderate Democrats, the Democratic Party is one big field. And sure, you're not close to, say, Ilhan Omar or AOC and Bernie Sanders. They're way on the other side of the field. And near you is a gate to another field. That's the Republican field. 
And you see a few Republicans that, are, that like Nancy Mace, who claim to be close to, to a moderate, and you say, you know, I'm a lot closer to them than I am to those guys way over there. And so he, they basically say, well, I'll just go work with those guys over there. And what they don't realize is that the Republican Party wants to basically annihilate the Democratic Party from the face of the earth. And so they, they are not really – you know, you're not – Dean, I understand you think to yourself that Republic, moderate Republicans would vote for you. Moderate Republicans are laughing because they look at you as a person building up conflict within the Democratic Party, and that's what they're applauding. They don't care if you run or not, and at the end of the day, they're still going to vote for Trump or they're just not going to vote at all. It's not like they're going to vote for you because, once again, one of the things that the Republican media has done a very good job of is brainwashing people into believing that they they would rather basically castrate themselves with a dull spoon than vote for Democrat in rural America. So you can think to yourself that this is somehow going to – work out well for you that this is some sort of game plan that you're going to encourage you're going to get all this 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 momentum and i'm going to pull all the moderate republicans and i get the moderate democrats and the independents and i'll win governor walls is a moderate he absolutely is and governor walls signed every one of those bills out of the minnesota legislature this year outside of the uber lift bill Every one of them. Progressive fantasy bill, done. Economic stimulus bill, done. Health care, women's rights preserved, done. Heck, they even named a street after Prince, done. Because at the end of the day, Governor Walls remembers that he's a Democrat. He's a member of the DFL party and that he might have some things he disagrees with with, say, one of the more liberal members of the party. But at the same time, he still believes in the party platform and he saw an opportunity to get a lot of good things done. And it did help. I mean, once again, as the governor, as the incumbent executive, that you basically have the ability to dictate some of what is going on in some of these bills. The question I've asked and I want to ask everyone out there is that if Dean Phillips was the governor of the state, do you think Dean Phillips would have signed all those bills? No, I don't think he would have. I think there's at least four or five of those bills that he would – at least four or five of the major bills that he would have vetoed and said, I'm sorry, we need, we need more Republicans on board with this. And that the thing that's funny, that's such a that's such a false standard because never will you ever hear a Republican say, I need more Democrats on board with this. They don't say that. They just get their party to vote in unison and and go across the board. And that's what they do. We have a very and I've talked about this when Colin Peterson was a member of the Democratic Party is that there's this mentality that the Democrats have had nationally and the DFL here in the state that if someone says, well, I'm just – I'll be a Democrat, that's good enough. And what you end up doing is creating an umbrella that's so wide that, of course, you're not going to get consensus because you have people who technically are the moderate Republicans from the 1990s who got run out of the party 
who know that that if they were going to run as a Republican, that they would get primaried out by a far-right loon ball. So it was easier for them to basically just say, you know what? I, I occasionally agree with the Democrats, so I'll just become a Democrat. I'll still mostly agree with Republican policies, or at least 50-50, purple. But the reality is is that I, I'll just I'll get the nomination as a Democrat, and we'll go from there. If Dean Phillips were to run as a as a, a challenger to Joe Biden, and if he was to want to win, there's not a question. Of course, I'd vote for Dean Phillips because there's an actual walking human version of a of a crap sandwich on the other side. No, I don't want a bite of that. No, I'll go with Dean Phillips. I wouldn't vote for Dean Phillips because do you think Dean Phillips could have gotten? The thing's done. Do you think Dean Phillips could have managed the COVID crisis as well as Joe Biden did? Do you think that that he that that he would have been able to get the infrastructure bill passed? Of course not. He got he 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 raised the debt ceiling and he got deals done because he knows how. You know, Joe Biden knows how to work with the House and the Senate, and he knows how to do it to get what his agenda is. And I don't think he's compromised. And then once again, I am hard-pressed to think of another politician who in their first two years in power were able to get as much done as Joe Biden was able to get done. And your argument seems to be, I could do better because I'm not old. Or your argument is, I just don't like where the party is right now. I want a more moderate, middle-of-the-road Democratic Party, so I'll feign that I'm a Democrat and I'll run as a as a as in, as in the middle of the road. Well, that's fine. Dean, if that's what you want to do, then cash in your DFL card, cash it in, turn it in, say I'm an independent now, and run. Knock yourself out. It's completely up to you. But if you do that, I'm sure not going to vote for you. Because I just don't think you could deliver like Joe Biden's delivered. I don't think at the end of the day, would, would I think that – would you back up a Democratic platform or would you, would you sacrifice a good portion of your Democratic platform just to try to win a few friends on the right? I think you'd do the latter. You've been you've – been, you, you, before even last year's election, and I talked about, talked about unforced errors, you were so quick to basically throw Biden under the bus – I, I I mean, watching Joe Biden out there with the UAW workers, you know, I I I hope it's not because you know to a point. I mean, and only Dean Phillips can answer this. I hope it's because you're 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 discriminating against his age versus the fact that how dare he stand with the workers against the company? I don't know what your argument is. All I do know is that you want you keep saying fresh voice. You don't talk about the fact that well, Joe Biden's delivered. And it'd be one thing if you had the guts to come on out and say, you know what? There should be an age limit on presidents. You can't be 70 or older to run. That's why I'm going to run. And maybe you'll win with that. And if you ran as a Democrat and you won with that and you knocked off Joe Biden and you went in and you were going to be the main candidate, of course I would vote for you. I'm not an idiot. But when it comes to the primary, there's no way in the hell I'm going to vote for you over Joe Biden because Joe Biden deserves my vote. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. It's take a break, wrap up the show for a Tuesday when we come back. The Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. 
Uh, this is one of the reasons why. Let me explain what the McCarthy and the Republicans are trying to do now. What McCarthy is trying to sweeten the deal for these extremists on the far right of his party to try to get a, a them all at least to vote for a bill. Cutting housing subsidies by the poor by 33%, a third, as soaring rents drive a national affordability crisis, forcing more than 1 million women and children onto the wait list for nutritional assistance program for poor mothers with young children, reducing federal spending on home heating assistance for low-income families by more than 70%, with energy prices heading into the winter months. With days left before the government shuts down, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has embraced steep reductions to the U.S. safety net in an attempt to appease far-right Republican demands for lower spending. And McCarthy can win over conservatives and pass legislation funding the government. Republicans hope to have greater leverage in negotiations with the Democratic-controlled Senate and the White House. Now, I want to make sure we point out here um, that what we're talking about here is a crisis that they themselves created – because they passed the Trump-era tax cuts. Those are what created the deficit problem. And one very logical point could say is, well, just undo the Trump-era tax cuts and not cut help for the neediest people, and we solved the problem. Instead, they're basically using that and saying, we can't ever touch that again, that that Trump-era tax cuts again, and the poorest people have to bear the brunt of these tax breaks for the wealthiest people. The plans from Republican appropriations call for roughly 80% cut to funding of public schools that serve high concentrations of students in poverty, according to the Center for American Progress. It also cut by at least half a fruit and vegetable benefit for poor pregnant mothers, which serves roughly 5 million people. It would also slash the budget for the office responsible for administering Social Security benefits to tens of millions of Americans, while also advancing multi-billion cuts to the National Institutes of Health, Head Start, and preschool grants. That is a non-starter. You know what I don't want in there as a Democratic president? I don't want some guy saying, I'll tell you what, we'll just make some of these cuts because then the Democrats will be my friend. Oh boy, I gotta, Republicans are going to be my friend. I'm going to be friends with Republicans. I just have to cut needy services. And I'm sorry, I, I look at this and I think the difference between Joe Biden and a guy like Dean Phillips is that Joe Biden – is going to look at this as like, okay, no, 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 and no. We're not doing any of this. And a guy like Dean Phillips was like, okay, do you have to take a third of a cut? Can we cut these benefits by, say, 20%? Then, then will you let me sit next to you in the lunchroom? Come on. Come on. Can I be your friend? I don't want somebody who's, who's, friends, who's desire to be friends with the guys that hate them basically overrides what's best for the American people. And once again, this entire crisis was created by the Trump-era tax cuts, which every Republican said would not add a dime to the deficit, and they lied. It was a massive crater they left in the deficit, and you could just undo those tomorrow, and guess what? You'd solve a lot of this. Instead, they want to break the backs of the poor to get this done. So no, I don't want somebody saying, well, I'm willing to entertain some of these ideas. Who needs schools and in, in, in needy communities? We don't need to do that. No, I'll stay with Joe Biden. I'll stay with Joe Biden. And until Dean Phillips comes on out there and tells me what he is for, as opposed to just saying, I want to work with the other side, then it's a non-starter. You, you can run all you like, Dean. I ain't voting for you. Tell me that you would not allow any of these bills to pass, no matter how much they promised they'd be your buddy. Tell me that. Native Roots is up for next. Have a good one. We're back tomorrow. Until then, see ya.